0: This is week two in our series through Ephesians, and this is a rich, deep, chock-full of stuff, text that we're going to fly through every week. We're going to try and pull out some major thoughts and themes from each chapter, which means we can't spend a whole lot of time on each verse. But if you weren't here last week, in chapter one, a very brief recap, you can say it in three words, chosen adopted forgiven when we know who we are in christ that is the first 14 verses when we have an accurate picture of our identity in christ being united with him then we can then treat others the way we've been treated have your mom ever tell you that treat others the way you want to be treated and so when we realize god's mercy and love toward us we want to treat others the same And so that got me talking about this hospitality ministry and how people matter to us when they come in the door. We need to be proactive about not just greeting them, but connecting with them on personal levels and the things that we're going to do to try and foster more of that here. And then we talked about praying. Praying intentionally. One person praying for one person. And maybe if you were here last week and you heard that, maybe that person was... Already in your mind, you knew who that person was going to be, and you have been faithfully praying for that person. That is going to be something throughout this year I'm going to be reminding you of, and we're going to be tangibly reminding each other to pray for that one person. And I I put it this way. I didn't make this up, but um, I put it this way. We are praying for the lost to be saved. We are praying for the saved to be discipled. And we are praying for the discipled to be deployed. One of these levels we're praying for the next step in the in the spiritual growth process, so it's likely you're the one praying for that person that you and I also need to be moved from one step to another maybe maybe you're in the midst of us here, and you haven't put your faith in christ if if it's something that you're thinking about or have struggled with or you're you're attending church, but you don't really feel like you've ever trusted Jesus for, for anything, and you don't feel the forgiveness, the covenant that Andrew talked about earlier. And so maybe your journey is to move from this being lost, and Ephesians 2 will help us do that, to a person who is in relationship, in connection, in life with Christ. Maybe that's your first step. Or if you are that person, you've made that step, you've trusted in him, and you know you're forgiven, but yet, you're not growing spiritually. You've, you've stalled out. Something in you is like, you've plateaued. And you don't have anybody speaking into your life personally, like JC and Leslie talked about. These relationships that disciple a believer into a deeper walk with Christ. Because we're not just supposed to do this vertical relationship with God. It has to be lived out in horizontal relationships with other Christians. You need a Paul you need someone teaching you and leading you in spiritual depth. You need a Barnabas, someone to come alongside you and encourage you in your faith. And you need a Timothy, someone that you are speaking into to grow them in their faith. So there's this, there's this, these, this process that we're in. But maybe if you are being discipled, you need to be deployed somewhere. You need a place where you can serve. You, you kind of feel like your wheels are spinning you're waiting on god to do something in your life to just get you out of the box and into somebody's life or into a, an environment where you can flesh out these gifts that you've been given you need to be deployed let's be praying for each other in these ways specifically so that's chapter one in a nutshell chapter two here's again three things that um, i don't know what it is about preachers and three things but it's it's kind of that way it's who we were, what God did, and our response. So let's just make sure we got this down. You, you guys over here, say who we, were. who we were. In the middle, what God did. And over here, our response. Okay, now with feeling, okay? Who we were. Ready? Ready? They've they got the volume thing over here going, I think. Okay? <laughs> it heady. Thank you, Eddie. All right. Um, I just want to make sure you're awake out there, okay? Because this is very simple, um, but yet it's so, it's so complex in its depth. The simplicity of what a conversation could look like when someone is asking about your faith, it boils down to three things. It boils down to who I was and what God did and how I responded. If you can identify and put in a couple sentences each one of those things, you could write your story down on a napkin in a restaurant and tell somebody, share with them your journey in Christ, who you were, what God did, and how you responded. Because this over here is, not you people, but this, this idea is where we get hung up. I could be very aware of who I was. And I can be intellectually assenting to what God did. But if I never take any action on it, if I don't respond in kind, then it really doesn't matter what God did to me. If I don't let it change me. Here's who we were. Okay, let's just walk through this text. If you got your Bibles open, it's Ephesians 2. I'm starting in verse 1. As for you, you were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's an interesting way to describe the devil. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's, That's the New International Version. Let me recap this in the New Living Translation, which is a great reader's version, if you're interested. New Living Translation, he says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. See, in the Bible, it's not necessarily whether you're good or bad. In scripture it's all about being alive or dead. Adam and Eve were told, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will what? Die. Spiritually, relationally, physically, you'll be separated from God. That's death in so many ways. And Romans 6 talks about, we, were, we died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? There's a death that happens when sin rules, and when Jesus brings life, that dies, death dies. I love that picture. So, you used to live in sin like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. We're going to see this flesh out here in Ephesians 2. Paul is, Paul is emphasizing in this letter there, is, there are forces at work in the unseen realm. There are forces of evil at work. Among us. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. See, most people think they're just doing their own thing. They're living their own life. They're making their own rules. Really what they're doing is they're obeying the devil. They're following the ways of the evil one without really even knowing it and he says all of us used to live that way following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature of 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 the flesh and by our very nature we were subject to god's anger just like everyone else paul describes our life before christ as death under the control of the devil, doing his bidding, ignoring God and his claim on our lives. And common sense says if we were, we're sitting ducks for God's wrath. We're just waiting for judgment day. And this is a little different assessment of what folks normally would call an unbeliever. That's, the, that's what we were. That's the bad news. But this is what God did. Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. See, there's the contrast. He made us alive. We were dead. He made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in sin. And here's that line. It's by grace you've been saved. What did God do? God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. I'm not sure what that looks like, frankly. I mean, it's not just he forgave our sins, which he did, but he, he took us somewhere. He put us somewhere. He put us with a person. He put us in a person, in the person of Christ. He seated us in heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. We, have with, we are with him, in him, in heavenly realms that oppose the evil that's in the unseen realm. There is a battle going on. Why did he do this? Verse 7, In order that in the coming ages, God might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. There are people watching. There's somebody going to hear this story about us, and we need to point to Jesus because of what, what God did. Verse 8, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not because you did something. So you can't brag about it. You didn't save yourself. God is rich in mercy. He loved us so much. We were dead. But the New Living Translation puts it in a a little different way that I, I think brings out this part about being with Christ There's twice in the New Living that says we were united with Christ Jesus. We were united with Christ Jesus by faith because of God's grace and his rich mercy toward us. I I don't think I can overemphasize the point that at no point are you as an individual just free-floating in time. You were either connected with death and united with it or you are connected with Christ and united with him. And that transition is only because God is merciful and grace oriented toward us and loves us in Christ, he took the punishment that we deserve. And the question is where are you? Where are you in the process? So where you were is it, are you oriented toward what God did? Are you responding to it somehow? There is no middle ground. There is no demilitarized zone to sit in. You are either united with death or you are united with Christ. And once that takes root, once we respond, what is our response? Well, he set us up, verse 10. We are God's workmanship. Other translations say masterpiece. We are his craftsmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do what? Anybody? Good works. Which God prepared when? In advance for us to do. You wonder, oh, God doesn't have a plan for me. Oh, God couldn't use me. Oh, God doesn't have anything. I couldn't do anything of any value. No, right here it says God has stuff for you to do. He prepared you for it. He created you to do these things already in advance. See, we're not just saved by grace. We're not just saved by grace to do good works. We're not just saved, and and that's why I put this up here. We're not saved by works, but we are saved to work. There's a purpose for you. Again, it's not just a horizontal relationship that Christ fixed so that you can be rightly related to God. That is primary and that is important because everything flows from that. But it has to be in relationship to other people. In right living in right relationship with others that are especially hard to deal with. That's where the rubber hits the road, right? And more often than not, and the heartbreaking truth of that is that sometimes those people go to church with you? Sometimes those people are across the board a table from you. Sometimes those people are in Sunday school class or in a ministry. And sometimes we would just rather do our thing with God. And I'm still going to church, but I don't have to be involved because I know some of those people and I know how they live and I know what they did to me and I know what they said to my family. I don't have to do anything. I can just be, I can be right here. Well, that's, the rest of this chapter challenges any of that. Because it's not just about being saved by grace in order to do good works. We're saved by grace in order to do good works together. The rest of this chapter bears out some unity issues. See, Paul talks about these Gentiles again. and In his day, the difference here was Gentile versus Jew. The bad news for the Gentiles was that they were excluded from Christ. They did not have citizenship in Israel. They were foreigners to the covenant. They were without hope and they were without God in the world. But in Christ, ones who were far away were brought near through the blood of Christ and He is our peace. I don't know that we can really comprehend the cultural significance of the Good Samaritan parable. I don't know that we can truly comprehend the difficulty that early Jewish Christians had, even allowing Gentiles into their home to worship Jesus together. Even sharing a meal was difficult for Jewish Christians, Christians of Jewish descent, to include Gentiles into the church. There was no greater separation in the ancient world. But Paul here says that Christ, in his body, demolished the wall that separated the two. Who had Jesus crucified? The Jews. Who put him on the cross? The Romans, the Gentiles. And together they, they killed Jesus Christ, and in his body and in his death, by his cross, he brought them together. Is that a huge irony, or what? Is there anything less likely to happen? His purpose, verse 15, was to create one new human out of the two, making peace. And he is still making peace. You probably heard in the news lately that Iran's been in the news for a long time, but lately it's been just hugely inflammatory. There's lots of things going on in Iran and in the U.S. response to all kinds of things that have happened over the years and you know nothing happens in a vacuum. It's all a part of history. But you might be interested to know there are things that the mainstream press isn't interested in reporting that's going on in Iran. This article from the Gospel Coalition is dated three years ago. Check this out. The Iranian Revolution of 1979 established a hard-line Islamic regime. Anybody old enough to remember that? The hostages taken right before uh, the U.S. election in 1980 and the outgoing administration, Jimmy Carter, and the incoming of Ronald Reagan, and all of that, all of that, that was the the Islamic Revolution of 1979, and over the next two decades, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecution. All missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles in Persian were banned and and, and became scarce. Several pastors were killed, and the church became under tremendous pressure. Many feared the small Iranian church would wither away and die, but the exact opposite has happened. Despite continued hostility from the 70s until now, Iranians have, become, Iranians have become the Muslim people most open to the gospel in the Middle East. As a result, more Iranians have come to Christ in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries put together since Islam came to Iran. There was an estimated 500 people, 500 Christians at the time of the revolution, after everything was stamped out and the diaspora occurred. But now, some estimates are that there are more than 1 million Christians in Iran today. And the question we need to ask is, does news like that make your heart rejoice? Are you encouraged by thousands of Muslims coming to Christ in the Middle East? Or are you skeptical? Are you slightly resentful? Do you have personal ties to loss because of conflict in the Middle East? Do we really believe and pray for peace from our own hearts to people who are not like us, who don't speak our language, who have a, a worldview that is distinct and opposite from, from ours. Do we have a love for them to come to Jesus? Do we really believe and pray for that picture in Revelation chapter, chapter 7, verse 9, that a great multitude from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language will stand before the throne and before the Lamb. Jesus is calling Muslims to himself by the thousands. Does that quicken your heart? Did you know that the first Christians, the very first Christians for centuries, they weren't Americans. They didn't speak English. They didn't even know what biscuits and gravy were. You know what I mean? They had never heard of a King James Bible. They were nothing like us. But we stand on their shoulders as descendants of their faith. Identity in Christ is as important as unity in Christ. We cannot underestimate our witness to the world in our unity or in our disunity. It will speak loudly in our town. It would follow that if I'm united with Christ and you are united with Christ, that I'm somehow united with you And you're my brother, or you're my sister. And your family. So how is it the body of Christ can get so divided? Well, it's the work of the devil. It's the work of the evil one. Do you you think the devil doesn't come to church? Oh, sure he does. He knows where his stragglers are. He knows where the weak spots are. He knows how to get our attention. As sure as the Holy Spirit is here, the devil's here too. As sure as the Holy Spirit's calling you toward Christ, the devil's distracting you away from him by any means possible. As sure as the Holy Spirit is convicting you of some sin in your life, the devil's trying to convince you it's no big deal. As sure as the Holy Spirit says you need to forgive and reconcile with another church member, the devil's making sure that you're afraid or that you're too proud or that you're too bitter to make the first move to make peace. Paul makes a big deal about unity in this book. And he spends most of chapter 6 prepping us to do battle against the evil one who wants to disunify and, and break us up. So we pray. So we need to pray. And we also need to learn to pray together, to have times of together prayer. It's one of the most difficult things for a married couple to do is to pray together. And that sounds like it ought not be, but I know the struggle When you're sitting in front of the woman who knows you best, all of your good things and all of your warts and all of the things that you try to hide but can't, and then you try to pray in front of her. Or ladies, as you know the thoughts and attitudes of your own heart, and you try to voice a prayer in front of your husband, it ought to be the thing that keeps us together and holds us tight, but it's sometimes the hardest thing for us to do. The devil will try to disunify your home But praying, praying together, praying as a family is one of the first and most powerful ways to bring unity. So take note of who you were and what God did and your responses will determine a whole lot as far as the trajectory of your life and your involvement in the body here, even a countryside. So let's pray. God, we thank you f- for all of the ways that you most powerfully just reached to us in grace and, and through your mercy. You've loved us. Uh, but you've left us with a choice, you've left us with, with room to, uh, to respond. And so our response, we pray would be decisive, would be without fear or shame, that you would remove our guilt and you'd remove the barriers that exist between us, even in our own homes. And we pray for humility and we pray for a love that transcends our abilities and that you'd strengthen your church in order to shine more brightly in our town, in our area, throughout the world. In Jesus' name, amen.